First readings from Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some 100 times. Then Jesus said, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And our second reading is from Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 to 6, verse 12. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bronte. A stunningly read, thank you. Let me pray. Father, you have a will and a way. Forgive us when we don't look for your will or follow your way. So challenge us this evening. Warn us, inspire us to be yours by the power of your Holy Spirit and for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. 
We are in a series in the book of Hebrews, and it's not easy, Hebrews. Um, it's challenging, and sometimes it's hard to understand. Uh, and as we've been saying through the series, it's not immediately relevant. There's always two steps, then and now. As I maintained last week, and you might have been here, you might remember my Qantas CMO friend, make it relevant or I don't listen. I say, well, I've, you know, I've got to teach the Bible. I, I can't, I've, I've got no choice but to take you to back then, then, before we apply it to us now. You could call this book solid food rather than milk. You could call it meat for a serious Christian, not mush for a baby Christian, a book to help you mature as a Christian, and we'll get to that today. Maturity in the context of the book of Hebrews is not more intelligence or more theology, not theology for theology's sake. Rather, maturity in the book of Hebrews is about, um, well, as Jesus says, it's about standing firm till the end. It's about having the practices now, the discipline now, to know what's sort of right and wrong now, so that when the time comes, you'll be at place to stand firm. A mature Christian is one who doesn't give in to the wobblies when they come, and they do come. Life is hard. Life is hard. In the book of Hebrews, they're not to give in, not even when persecution comes, not even when death is on the line. A mature Christian can pick up what's going on even before the persecution comes. Now, you may be asking through the series, now, why does all this matter? The writer of Hebrews just seems so intense. Perhaps he should relax some more. Why not take a chill pill? After all, you might say, religion is a private matter. Um, you know, religion is about uh, sort of whatever helps you through the day. It gives you a little bit of hope. You might say that. So let the hearers of the letter make their own choice. But no, it's very much a book with heavy warnings and eternal consequences. And so the answer to the question, why does this matter, is that it is indeed a matter of life and death, not just physically, although death is on the line, I mean, actual persecution, but spiritually as well, your relationship with God. And this isn't just truth as personal opinion, living my truth. Uh, you know, I live in an era of self, and so my truth is what matters. No, this is not relativism. In the book of Hebrews, and I believe it, there really is a God. It's not a matter of personal opinion. There is a God. And that God has fully and finally spoken by a son, chapter 1, verse 3, who is offering the only eternal salvation that's clear in the book, and he will judge the living and the dead. You don't want to be found not right with him. You want to be found right with him. And there really is, or rather was, a persecution back then, and there is today in many parts of the world, insults and threats to withstand, being thrown to lions in the circus, beheadings and burnings, the confiscation of property. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once famously wrote, when Christ calls a woman, he bids her come and die. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And you say, did he really say that? Or is Bonhoeffer just another uptight person, like the writer of Hebrews? And the answer is, yes, he did. Jesus called his disciples together and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must 
deny themselves and take up their cross. There it is. And follow me. There's no other way. For whoever wants to save their life, right, scrambling to make it work, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life gives it all up. For me and for the gospel will save it. They're Jesus' words. And if anyone is ashamed of me or my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, is referring to himself, will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Now, the writer of Hebrews believes that's true, and so do I. The question is, for them, do they? And for us, do we? The test for them back then is whether or not they would give in when the Romans knock on the door and say that you have to line up at the pagan temple and just give a little sacrifice to the Roman gods, just a little one. And quite frankly, the Romans don't mind if you do it with your fingers tied behind your backs. They don't care. They just want you to turn up and say Caesar is Lord, which means Jesus is not Lord. Will they do that? So it's a serious book. It's life and death. And so the book comes with warnings. Warnings usually come with exhortations to do something or avoid something. But there are at least two forms of warning, as far as I can tell. There's one form of warning that goes like this. It's short. It's sharp. It comes with exclamation marks and sometimes even with shouting. And this is when the danger is immediate and it's usually of a physical nature. You know, there's a oncoming traffic. Get out of the way, get out of the way. You know, there's a, you're walking, there's a pothole, watch out. You're playing golf, ball coming in the air. Um, four, you yell. There's another kind of warning which is more complex and is the form we find in Hebrews. And that is when you can see a genuine danger down the track, which might not be obvious to the person who's receiving the warning. Anyone who has had a friend about to enter a dubious relationship knows the experience. Are you sure this is not toxic? Or a teenager, your teenager, about to go on a, a, a trip with risky friends? A colleague about to make a morally ambiguous choice at work? A friend about to ditch God. You know the experience. You can see the outcome, but maybe they can't. And so it's tricky. You can be short and sharp and loud if you want, but that rarely works. works. Exclamation marks don't work in such circumstances. More likely, you'll need to be clear, but careful, loving, but insistent. And you'll need to use reason and persuasion which is the very thing the writer of Hebrews uses in this letter. And you're going to have to trust them too because the decision will be theirs and not yours. You don't get the control. You don't get to be coercive ever, ever. Today we see the range of the writer's exhortations in, uh, in this inclusio, this section. I want to prove to you that it is a section in a moment's time. And the range involves an admonition, a warning, and an encouragement. There are three very neat sections. The first section is an admonition, second a warning, and the third is an encouragement. So let's break those apart. There's an admonition in 5 verse 11 to 6 verse 3, and the admonition, well there are two actually, and they're related, although the writer mixes metaphors, he didn't take the class. 
The first admonition is, you ought to be on solid food by now, but you're not. You're, you need milk, really, because you're, a baby, you're, you're baby Christians. But at this, I mean, there's such a thing as a baby Christian, but you shouldn't be one. You should be ahead of that now. And the second admonition is related, but you ought to be teachers by now. You know, you, you should be teaching the Sunday school by now. You, but you, you need something deeper than your ABCs if you're going to survive the Christian walk. Now, we need to ask ourselves, is this word relevant to us? Is it relevant to me? Are we content to live on milk? Simple, basic things that we could ditch the moment something hard comes. And by the way, this happens all the time. You gather a couple of answers. They seem to work for you in the moment. But, you know, you go traveling. You see this. You see that. You, and then you're like, is it really that true? But, you know, you... The amount of people that walk away from Christ when they're still very young. I've said it to people a couple of times when I say, now we'll be in dialogue, and I say, it seems to me that you still have an understanding of Christianity that's sort of stuck to being age 15. And they'll often say, yes, it is. Are you hungry for something more? Something more substantial? Something more nourishing? And you'll see in a moment, this is not just learning new things. It's not just about sort of novel learning. Ought we to be teachers by now, extending what we learn, pressing deeper into God, helping others to stay Christian when things are hard, and they're hard. He begins this whole text today by saying that they are sluggish. It begins and ends the same way. So if 5 verse 11, it's in your Bibles, but I've put it up on the screen for a reason. In 5 verse 11, the writer says, we've much to say about this, the order of Melchizedek, that's last week, download the talk, we'll get to it in chapter 7, June 25. We've much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. You're not even trying. Like you're checking out, you know, even as I write. In the King James Version, it's closer to the original language, seeing ye are dull of hearing. In Eugene Peterson's The Message, it goes like this. I have a lot more to say about this, but it's hard to get it across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. Literally, it means it's hard to make it clear to you because you are literally sluggish in your ears. Sluggish in your ears. The writer will end this section with the same words. In 6 verse 12, he'll say, we don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And literally it means we don't want you to become sluggish. Suggesting that our text today is an inclusio, a neat section that should be treated as one. Basically, it's saying you're dragging your heels with your ears, so you're dragging your heels with your feet as you follow Jesus. It's all thick mud for you. You aren't listening. You could be obeying. Listening and obeying are closely related ideas in the Bible. In the Hebrew, they're separated as two similar words with one single letter difference. So listening and obeying are related linguistically, theologically and personally. 
So he writes in verse 12, follow in your Bibles. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. It's like he's saying you're immature. If I gave you anything you know, deeper in this moment, you wouldn't be able to hold down the solids. Verse 13, anyone who lives on milk, being still a child, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use throughout their life, with good habits, even when the persecution doesn't come, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You ready for it? I read a commentary this week that persuaded me that teaching about righteousness is connected with standing firm in persecution. You're not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. In the second century, Polycarp, a senior minister in the church in Smyrna, was thrown to the lions in his 80s as an old man. And uh, the commentary I read outlined his life. It's quite remarkable. Um, they kept putting him out in farms to avoid the particular persecution they were facing in Smyrna, which is now modern-day Turkey. And eventually the Romans were passionate to get the episcopoi, the bishop, and so they found him and brought him into the arena. You know, this old man, doesn't make any sense at all. And they're trying to make him recant to give up his faith. And he says, 83 years, my Lord has never let me down. I will not let him down in this moment. But before he, uh, he did this, this is like 100 years after this letter was written, no more than 100 years, he wrote these words, I therefore exhort you to carry out the word of righteousness and to practice endurance to the limit, suggesting that he's reading Hebrews 5.13 in this way. You know, you know enough not to throw it in when death is on the line, but not enough to keep you from carrying out the word of righteousness and enduring, practicing endurance to the limit. Verse 14, but solid food then is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good and evil, which is not simply to gain more knowledge, like you've got yourself a theology degree, but rather that you know what's needed to pick the moment and stay Christian. What then? 6 verse 1, Therefore let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, and verse, down to verse 3, and God permitting, we will do so, we who are writing this letter, meaning chapter 6 and following, other meat you need. It's the meat you need. 6 verses 1 and 2, and I want you to look at it. It's just beautiful. They appear to be sort of chapter headings in an early church catechism, elementary teachings about Christ, foundational teachings, which are, you know, chapter one, part one, verse one, repentance and faith, right? Turn and believe. Uh, verse two, instructions about cleansing rites, which Bishop Tom Wright says are about baptisms. It's hard to know, as well as the laying on of hands, so part two is about perhaps the entrance into the life of the community, becoming Christian, staying Christian or belonging. And the last part might be about hope, you know, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. We've just done a series on this. These are the elementary teachings about Christ. 
And the writer says, let's keep all of that and then move forward. Because you can have all of that, and people do have all of that, and they still walk away. People do all the time. So first, an admonition. Second is a warning. Six verses four through eight. And the warning is, it's impossible for those who've fallen away to be brought back to repentance. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean? What theologians have argued for centuries about this text. It's been quite difficult from the days of the early church to know what to do with it. I want to offer a suggestion to you in the sea of suggestions that could be made. Does this mean that someone who was a Christian but isn't now can never be restored? I don't think so. I don't think that's what it means. Can I? Yeah. Here's an example. Joel Williams. I'll come to his story in a moment. You could tell it another time, but I'll give you the digest version. I believe, rather, it is a warning to those who are currently Christian to grasp the nature of what you currently have. Because if you don't grasp the nature of what you currently have, you'll pop in and out when it suits, which is effectively self as God. And that's not what it means to be Christian. It's not what it is to follow Christ. You'd be joining those who are happy to see Christ killed. I want to read it to you. I'm going to put it on the screen because it's important to get, you know, some of you don't put your eyes on the page, so to look up here. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who've fallen away, to be brought back to repentance. Now, first, notice the genuinely stunning description of a person who is genuinely Christian. You've been enlightened. You've tasted the heavenly gift. You've shared in the Holy Spirit. You've tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and it is honey to your soul. And the powers of the coming age, you believe in the resurrection, the power of the resurrection. So good. It's been, it's been that good. You have, in the words of Psalm 34, the way we'll conclude our service today, you've tasted and seen the Lord is good. You've taken refuge in Christ. You've been touched by God. You've caught a glimpse of everything good in the gospel, the goodness of the word of God, the power of his resurrection. You've, if you've experienced all of that, then he says, if you fall away, you're basically saying none of that was in, none of what I have was any value because I saved my own life. My own life ended up being of more value. So I choose self over God. And so it functions really as a warning. Be warned. There's no coming back from that. You can't come in and out with pain and then come in and out at the next persecution. To their loss, the writer says, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The best way I can explain this would be something like this. A friend who's married comes to you and says, look, I love my wife, I love my husband, and I'm committed to them. I mean what I said with my marriage vows. I mean that. I mean it, I mean it except when it's hard. I mean the vows except when it's hard. And when it's hard, what I do is, you know, self-care. I walk away and find someone easier to be with. And I'm with them for a little while until things settle down. And then I come back to my wife. I would say it is impossible to come back from that because it betrays the basic nature of that relationship. Faith in Christ and marriage share this in common. They are not like 
Netflix subscriptions. They're not like binge, where you can come and go as you like. In fact, they'll tell you, sorry to see you go, please come back later. They'll tell you that. Now, that's very pertinent in the life of the early church, because when a persecution came along, which they did from time to time, some of them stayed true to Christ. They didn't turn up to the temple and make their sacrifice. But others caved and nodded into the pressure to give in. You know, which I've not experienced such things. You can sort of, it's hard. Some stayed true, some caved in. But when the persecution stopped, which it inevitably did, could the people who caved in, could they come back to community? Where some people in that community had scars and no money and maybe a child or two that was dead after the persecution and other people had all their property and no scars and all their children standing next to them. Very, very difficult in the life of the early church. I haven't checked up on this, it's not in my notes, but when I was at Moore College, they, in the history class, they said that the origin of penance wasn't originally anything like earn your salvation. You know, you've got sins, you've got to work them off. Nothing like that. Apparently, the original origin of penance was when the people who caved came back to the community, those who had the scars said to them, you've got to show us that you can handle some pain before you join the community again. Now, I'm not buying that. I'm just saying, very difficult in the life of the early church. If you treat your faith like binge on Netflix, then you are like the second soil in the parable Jesus told about the farmer and soils and seeds, read to us earlier by Bronte. I put this slide up earlier on in the year, but I don't expect you to remember talks from week to week, so, you know, do you remember that? Okay. Four soils, said Jesus, seed falling on the soils and water falling on the mall. You, if you give up Christ, you are like land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, verse 6. You drink in the word of God, you're nourished, but instead of producing a crop that's useful to the farmer, to Christ, instead you produce thorns and thistles, verse 7, and in the end it will be burned. The danger for the writer, the recipients of the book is that they're number two. And he says to them, I want you to be number four. But you can't walk away and remain Christian any more than you can remain married and fall around. You've missed the nature of the relationship. Now, people do return to Christ after a season of being away in the same way that marriages sometimes heal. People do come back to the faith, and Joel is a beautiful example of such things. When he was a 15, 16, decided to walk away, some enthusiastic minister read this text to him. It's impossible for those who've fallen away to come back, and Joel thinks to himself, well, if I've burnt my bridges, I may as well go the whole way. We'll hear his story at the right time. I may as well live for myself. But later, age 30, as an adult, he worked out that he could return but he must return repenting almost as a new believer or a fresh believer. And I hope that people that you love do just that. An admonition, a warning, and finally, an encouragement. Six verses eight through 11. 
And this is the easiest section, easiest third of the section. But perhaps it's the most important one. Even if the easiest to understand, I don't really need to explain it. But the encouragement is this. God will not forget your work and the love that you have shown him. So verse 9, even though we speak like this with these um, strong warnings, even though we speak like this, dear friends or beloved, even though we speak like this, beloved, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Verse 10, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help him. In other words, you guys are good. You know, I need to give you the warning, but you're good. God has seen what you've done, and he'll remember it. That said, you are, or you appear to be babies. I think you need to grow up, so you'll need to assume responsibility for your growth and nourishment. You can't say, you know, the preacher didn't give it to me, the priest didn't give it to me, the community group leader didn't run a good Bible study this week. You have to own your own growth. You have to own your own nourishment, which is verse 11. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become sluggish, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised and who will lay out dozens of such people in chapter 11, his great cloud of witnesses, beginning with Abraham, cheering you on as you finish the race. This section is simple. It's four verses basically saying, you've got this. And I want to say to you, Churchill, you've got this. I think these three aspects of warning are like a three-legged stool, an ancient one. That's why I chose that photo. You like it? It's probably made last month. You know, three-legged stool is a metaphor. I once went to a conference where the guy said, oh, you know, I want you to see my three-legged stool. And then he bulleted, bullet pointed three uh, separate unrelated points. And I'm thinking, I don't think you know what the metaphor means. The metaphor means you need all three. And if one falls, oh, you know, this one falls, you, the chair doesn't stand. These three things, ab appropriate admonition, a gospel warning, an encouragement to keep going. I believe God uses all three. They all work together to hold you in. You've got this. And all of this is built on the solid foundation of the gift of God, the things that have to do with salvation or redemption, namely the personal work of Jesus Christ, grace to sinners like me, strength for wobbly people, life is hard, a great high priest who understands weakness, his life, his death, his resurrection, so great a salvation. I believe in the end, he is the heavenly gift that we've tasted. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He is the goodness of the word of God become flesh. And by his resurrection, we share the powers of the coming age, the power indeed to stand firm until the end. Let me pray. Father, maybe this is a word that is thoroughly pertinent and appropriate for us right now. We feel wobbly. Um, it's not been easy. We've come back to church maybe to try it out. Can't shake church. Some friends invited us. But we pray for 
I want to pray for those people in the room that are feeling genuinely wobbly right now, and I just ask you that you will give something special to them tonight, uh, some measure of your spirit, some word from above, some reason to keep going. For other of us, of us, we might have been Christian for quite some time, and perhaps we even feel like we're standing firm. I pray that you'd Help us day by day to live this life so that when the difficult time comes, and they will come, when the wobblies come, we'll be able to stand firm until the end. Father, I pray that you'll give us that which belongs to salvation, redemption through Jesus Christ. And so we say tonight, come to the altar. We say tonight, we come to Jesus Christ. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness is brought through the precious blood of Christ. We come to him. Jesus himself said, come to me all who are weary and, and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. And yet, Father, through following Jesus Christ, we bear our cross as we wait for the crown. And we tell the world of the treasure we've found. We delight in this for Christ's sake. Amen.